everybody. Welcome back to Who's Your Band? Uh, Sean, how are you today? Wonderful, Jeffrey. How are you doing? I see these seedlings on top of your head coming in nicely. Yes. Last week. Looking yes. good. Yes. Right, very- the rocaine is working. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're looking good. Uh, listen, man, we have another two great guests. Uh, let me introduce Grammy winner. Okay. Owner of a number one record, Mr. Billy Vera. And comedian from the Howard Stern Show, Miserable Men, Mr. Mike Moss. How are you, gentlemen? Hi there. I'm. I lost you. Do you see me? We see. Unfortunately, yeah, we see you. See you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As long as you can see, hear me. I can't see or hear you, but I know what you guys look like. <laughs> let's and all give him the. Let's thing. all give him the finger as he can't see us. Right <laughs> so I feel that. We. I. Billy, when you. When you talk to Billy Vera. What what an extensive career. And I mean, in my eyes, consummate musician. And um, first question right out of the box I got to ask you, when you write a song like At This Moment, how did that change your career? And how did that song come about? Because that song has many different layers on when it came out and when it actually became a hit. Sure. Well, I was still living uh, up in Westchester uh, at the time, and I, I had met a, a girl at a club I was playing at, and I just, you know, we fell madly in love with each other. And she started to tell me early in the relationship, I mean, like maybe the first night, that about breaking up with her previous boyfriend and how he suffered so terribly for her. So I started writing the song from what I perceived as his point of view. And I got about two thirds of the way through it and I couldn't finish it. I, I just, so I, usually when that happens, I just throw the song away. And in this case, I put it in my mother's uh, piano bench. Was one of these loser musicians that was living with my mother at 33 years old. And- uh, It's not and, much different for comedians. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, but about a year later when she dumped me, I knew how the song ended, so I finished it. Mm-hmm. That was 1977. And, uh, and, and so in the interim, I, got a, I, I hadn't had a hit record in like nine years. And Dolly Parton cut one of my songs. And on the strength of that, I got a, a deal with Warner Brothers to come out to LA and write songs for them. So I'm driving out on Route 10 all the way out, and I'm hearing my song sung by Dolly Parton every 20 minutes, man. I said, whoa, I'm back in showbiz, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, the day I arrived in LA, it was number one on the country charts. So I, I played at this moment for the guy from Warner Brothers, and it's, it's, he's a guy that's been in the music business forever. And, uh, and I look around afterwards, he's playing, I'm playing it for his whole staff, and he's got tears coming down his face. I said, Jesus, this, this song, maybe it must have something, you know? I mean, to get that kind of a rea- reaction from a guy that's been through the mill. And, uh, you know, that was that. And I started doing the song. And then we, we, about a year later, I, well, not a year later, I started the, the Beaters just to have something to do on the weekends because I didn't know anybody in LA. And I ran into my old bass player. and. Um, and people started liking at this moment, you know. Uh, 
we got a record deal and it, it we, we got a little hit record called I Can Take Care of Myself. And at this moment was the follow-up. And just as that came out. And this was about 81? 81, yeah. The head of promotion got in a fight with the boss of the label and we had no head of promotion to promote at this moment. And the record died at number 79. The company goes out of business and now I'm 34, 35 years old, whatever. And I couldn't get a record deal. So uh, I, I, I ran into John Voigt, who was the brother of uh, the guy that taught me how to write songs, Chip Taylor, who wrote Wild Thing, Angel of the Morning, you know, all those. And John says, you know, I, I'm watching you up on the stage, man. He says, you, you really do something I never saw another sing, singer do. He says, you don't just say, hey, LA, I'm doing, you know, all that crap. You know, I'm gonna make you laugh. I'm gonna make you cry, blah, 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 blah. So he says, you, you just lay it out there, man, and let them feel what they would organically feel. He said, that's what we do in this acting class I go to. He said, you should be an actor, you'd be great. I said, John, I don't wanna be an actor, man. So, he, but he's very persuasive, you know, and he talked me into it. So I started going to classes and then the next thing you know, I, I'm getting gigs, you know, uh, television shows and did this movie called Buckaroo Banzai. Mm -hmm. So now five years goes by and I get a phone call. The guy says, hi, my name's Michael Whitehorn. Uh, I, I write and produce a show called Family Ties. And we were at the club the other night and we heard you do this song and we think it'd be great for this episode we have coming up. And I said, what, what's the name of the song? He says, I don't know. Of course, nobody ever knows the name of At This Moment. They always get it wrong. Hey, would you do that song? Uh, uh, if I could just fucking hold you again, you know. Yeah, do that one that goes la, 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 la. Yeah. So we finally figured out that it was At This Moment. And he said, yeah, that's the one. And uh, I said, we'll call Warner Brothers and license the song for the show. And he did. And I get a bag full of mail. Now, I'd had songs on TV shows before. You get a couple of hundred bucks, nice, nice day of, at lunch. But this time, it was the first time I got mail. I said, man, this song must have something. So I, I went to, I called some record companies, see if I could get somebody to let me re-record it. Nobody was interested. And then finally, I'm having one of my regular uh, lunches with my friend Richard Foos, who owned the label called Rhino Records. They, they put out oldies, but goodies. I told him the story. I said, uh, hey, hey, Richard, how many records do you need to sell to break even? He says, oh, a couple of thousand. We have low overhead here. You know? I said, what if I guarantee you a couple of thousand records? I could sell them at the clubs if I have to. And so he said, yeah, we'll, we'll put out an album. We'll put out a single. So they did. And he only did it because he liked me. You know, I don't think he ever thought he'd make any money with it. So. They, then they used the song the following season again when the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox. And then everybody went crazy because now the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl, is the same as the story of the episode. And so people are, NBC got like more phone calls than they ever got in the history of the network, they told us. And then people start calling record stores, where can I get this record, blah, blah, blah. And the thing starts leaping up the charts on little tiny rhino records. 
And uh, we're leaping over Madonna, we're leaping over Bon Jovi. <laughs> Next thing you know, we're number one, man. And uh, here I am, 42 years old now, and I got the number one record in the country. And, you know, what do I do now? You know, it, it, it just changed my life. I remember I, when around that time, I was put myself through college and I owned a small record store. Uh -huh. And I remember your record, Prince, and I, maybe it was like Twisted I couldn't keep those records on the shelf. But I remember at this moment made me a lot of money selling <laughs> that record. Yeah, that was good. You helped put me through college. Did, uh, Vito, did Vito Picone come in there and write and buy a copy? You know what? I did a TV show with Vito Picone because of that TV show. Me and Vito Picone were both cast in The Irishman from this TV show. I like him. He's a good guy. He is a good dude. Um, he's, he's still out there performing. Probably the most famous person that ever came from Staten Island, right? Yes. <laughs> well, now Pete Davidson, maybe. Um, you mentioned that you, you wrote for Dolly Parton, but you also wrote for Fats Domino, Ricky Nelson, anybody else? And who did you enjoy writing for the most? Well, you know, in those days, in the early, early days, it's in the mid-60s, late 60s, I had this gig as a staff songwriter for a publishing company. You know, they, they lock you up in a little room with a half a piano. And Is that kind of like what they used to do, like, in the uh, Brill Building? Yeah, the Brill Building was down the street. I was in 1650 Broadway, which was really the coolest building. You know, all the, the a lot of the great writers, you know, Sedaka and Greenfield and Goffin and King and uh, uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde, they were, they were in our building. But we were on the second floor. And uh, yeah, it was the same thing. You know, your boss would knock on the door and say, hey, uh, the Shirelles are coming up for a date, write something for them. Or Tony Bennett's coming up, write something for them. Mike, can you imagine that? I did. Being in a room with a piano and some, some instruments, and that's your job. You, you, you report to work <laughs> in Midtown Manhattan to write songs for right. these amazing artists. And you have all these other uh, amazing writers around you, too, doing that. Did you ever hear a, a song one of those other people were doing? And as soon as you heard it, you go, oh, that's going to be huge. Well, sometimes, you know, you, you, you just know there's good writers. Like next in the office next to mine was Chip Taylor, and across the hall from me was Van McCoy. And he, he wrote some pretty great songs, you know, Baby, I'm Yours, and, uh, you know, When You're Young and In Love. And he, got to, he had gotten to the point, though, where a lot of his songs were sounding alike. Uh -huh. he, you know, instead of copying other writer's songs, he started copying his own songs. <laughs> Chip, I, I remember the day Chip wrote Wild Thing, um, he said, hey, man, you, you got to stay late tonight. Uh, this group, The Wild Ones, is going to record tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. He says, anything we write will get on the date. Any piece of crap we write. So, so I said, Chip, I can't go. I got a gig up in Stanford tonight. You know, make $15, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, don't stay. He said, forget the gig. He said, we'll get on this, this date. I said, man, I'm the singer. The band can't work without me. I got to go. So I, I went and uh, I got on the train, went up, played my gig in Stanford, made my 15 bucks. I come downstairs the next morning. I said, how'd you do it? Did you come up with something? He says, yeah, I wrote this thing. He said, and they, and they, they recorded it. And it didn't come out so good. It was a wild thing. <laughs> and so about a year later, our, our British uh, uh, guy over in London, he, he, uh, he sent over this, this record of Wild Thing. And you know, Chip says, listen to this thing. What do you think? And it was the Trogs record. Right. 
I said, dude, I said, this is a number one record if I ever heard one. And you know, you just knew, you know, it was one of those records, you, 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 you just knew. And it was written in, a, in an office in New York City. Well, he, he, he didn't even finish it in the office because <laughs> he, he, he had booked the, the studio. He finished it in the studio. <laughs> it's amazing. As the was running practically, you know? I give, I give songwriters like you a lot of credit because, I mean, I've written jokes for other comics because I can put myself into the mind frame of mm-hmm. how they're going to deliver it. But right. any song that I ever wrote, I could never imagine anybody else doing because it was so personal from my point of view. And I couldn't, I couldn't remove myself from that mindset. Like I would always write songs about my personal stuff. I could never sit in a room with you and say, hey, what do you want to write a song about? Well, I'm going to write a song about a blue turtle that I saw walking down the beach. I, yeah. could, never, I could never do that. So I give you guys a lot of credit to be able to your way, hits like that. Your way of writing is the way most people write nowadays. Yeah. And, and I, I, don't be insulted, but I think it has to do with the narcissism of our society today. You know, people are, are so wrapped up in their own lives. But, but our job was, it's like being an actor. You know, if, I gotta, if somebody says, hey, uh, well, the first song I ever wrote with Chip, uh, Barbara Lewis, who had just, our company had had Baby I'm Yours by Van McCoy, by Barbara Lewis. So we sat down and we wrote a song for a girl, from a girl point of view, you know, with the, the kind of emotions that a girl would feel. We knew Barbara Lewis's range, because we, we'd heard her previous records, we knew that she didn't have Patti LaBelle's range, you know, so you had to keep it within that, that, that those, those notes that she could sing. And so you, you, you craft, it's a craft, you know, yeah. writing for other people. And, uh, or if you're writing for, uh, you know, a Chuck Jackson or somebody like that, or a Wilson Pickett, what, what kind of subject matter do they like to sing about? So you you really craft a song, hopefully for that person, and hopefully have, they'll like it. Have Have you ever uh, had a re- an artist record a song that sounded completely different than what you would imagined it would? Yes. Uh, one day, speaking of Ch- you know who Chuck Jackson was? Yeah. Any day now, you know, I wake up crying. I don't want to cry. And uh, so the, my boss came in one day. Said uh, said Chuck Jackson's coming up for a date. Uh, write something for him. So I, I said, well, Chuck, I said, hmm, he's gotten kind of stiff lately. I, I said, he needs something to, to wake him up. So I said, he, he's got that gravelly voice he could preach. So I had been listening to a song by Little Junior Parker, the blues man, called Driving Wheel. And in the middle, there was a, a device where he stops the song and starts to preach. So I included that device in this song that I wrote for Chuck Jackson. And uh, he, he didn't end up recording it. So, well, so one of the bosses at uh, the company, he, he takes it over to Epic Records. And he, instead of a great soul singer like Chuck Jackson, uh, it ends up with this, this white group from uh, Norwalk, Connecticut called The Remains. And, uh, and they recorded the song, and I heard their record. I said, and it was nothing like I, I, I envisioned Chuck Jackson doing, but I loved their record. It was like um, it was like the Stones, you know, doing this song, 
doing a cover. And I, I thought for sure I was going to have a number one record. And of course, it didn't do anything, you know. <laughs> but 20 years later, or less than that, I'm down in the village at this record store, and I run into this skinny guy with this long, stringy hair, and he's working at the store. He says, my name's Lenny Kay. He says, I just put out an album, uh, and I used one of your songs on it, a compilation album called Nuggets. And I said, what song? He said, Don't Look Back. I said, By the Remains? He said, yeah, why'd you do that? Nobody ever heard of that song. He said, are you kidding? He said, that song's a legend, you know, in my crowd. So the record didn't sell anything. So cut to 20 more years later, and then at this moment is on the charts, and I get a call from Cindy Lauper's uh, husband. And he said, Cindy, just cut your song, Don't Look Back. She's gonna do it as a duet with Joan Jett. I said, wow, great, man. Make some money finally off this song. It didn't happen, didn't come out. So now six months later, I get this promo CD in the mail of Robert Plant's new solo album. And there's four songs on this promo CD and Don't Look Back is one of them. The album comes out, Don't Look Back's not on the album. So now I'm starting to think the friggin' song got the Molochio, you know? <laughs> it's, a, it's, you know it's jinxed. So now, cut to another 20 years later, now it's, I don't know, whatever, 19, no, like 2005 or something. Rhino puts out uh, uh, an expanded version of Lenny Kay's Nuggets album in a box set, and it sells a ton of records. Ton of records, and finally, money starts flowing in. Then about a year later, they put out a Robert Plant box set, and my song's on there. So now, 40 years after I wrote the song, I, I finally started making a lot of money from this song. That <laughs> was the, a bomb, you know? That's amazing. You know, talking about uh, writing a song and not having it come out the same way, have you uh, seen the television show that's on right now called Songland? No. It's a great it's a great show. It's based out of Nashville. It's on NBC. And what they do is they'll they'll pick like a major artist. So say like a Lady Antebellum or Usher or somebody like that. And they have uh, three really, really amazing producers. So four people will come in, sing their original song for them. They cut one original song immediately. So then they have three producers and three artists. And then what they do is they take the song that they're doing and they basically do what Mike just said. They completely change the song automatically. They'll, they'll take the verse and change it to the chorus and, and everything. And then the, the star of the show, whoever the guest artist is, actually records that song. Oh, cool. And they put it out the next week. I think it's an amazing uh, outlet for new songwriters because you can see how you can take something that's even like an R&B uh, even jazzy kind of vibe and they'll have a band like Lady Antebellum who's a country artist sure. they'll rework the whole song and they still manage to make that song a hit what a great idea for a show it really is and it's based yeah. out of Nashville which I I've said this before on on the show I really think that uh, the, the pop country genre right now is the biggest genre it's, it's, it's one of the most selling genres. So, I mean, I, it's one of the only few shows I actually watch on television weekly. And uh, it's cool because after the song is done, this, as soon as the episode is over, uh, iTunes releases the single right away. Wow. wow. Really great concept. Very, very cool. 
I have a question for both Mike and Billy. Um, did both of you guys grow up with music uh, in your households growing up? Yeah, my mother was uh, one of the Ray Charles singers on the Perry Como show. And, oh, wow. Uh, sang on Como's records. And, and uh, every Saturday night, she's on the Como show. You know, letters. We get letters. We get you know, all that stuff, which is before your guys' time. But that was in the 50s. So, yeah, there was always music. And my mom had pretty hip taste. You know, she brought home Sinatra records and uh, Arthur Prysock records and Nancy Wilson records. So in addition to the the records of my day, which was Fats Domino and Frankie Lyman and Chuck Berry, Little Richard and all that, I was listening to the music of her time. So I had a broader um, vision of, of, of music than most guys my age who only liked rock and roll. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I had a very strange you know, beginning. Uh, uh, the, uh, my parents liked music, but they they had me when they were forty. So, uh, and I was born in sixty one. So by the time I came, you know, th their stuff was all forties. You know, even before rock and roll even started. So that was the stuff they liked. So I heard them playing that. And I had a bro. I have a brother. Had a brother uh, who uh, uh, was eighteen and a half years older than I. So, wow. you know, and it was just, he, you know, we were the only two kids. So he was already in college by the time I was born, but he left all his stuff there. So I had all his 1950s uh, <clears throat> singles and 78s, uh, Elvis and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jerry Lee and uh, Chuck Berry, yada, yada. And uh, so that's, those are really the first records I had because they were, they were around. So, it, you know, I was the only person, you know, my age group who knew all the 50s stuff and then of course i'm listening to am in the uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s so it was a very weird so i had like a long uh uh history of of knowing you know knowing music history i should say um and then you know before even i even got my own uh tastes going you're you have one of the best closing bits in, in comedy i think Oh, well, thank you. you incorporate a ton of music in your act. Yeah, yeah. I used to. I used to do song parodies when I first started out. Uh, at my little guitar, and I would. Uh, I would do. Uh, uh, not quite as successful, strangely enough. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I would. I would do that. Would that used to be when I first started? The first few years was the big closer. Was break out the guitar and do a few stupid uh, song parodies. Because, uh, you know, I'd, I'd always loved music. I was in a band when I was younger. And once I started doing comedy, I was like, all right, I might as well incorporate it. Um, but yeah, so now the thing I do is pre-recorded music. And it's, uh, but that's fun to do. You'll have to, you know, you'll have to come see it, people, uh, if there's ever comedy again. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. And it's one of those things where you stand in the back of the room like, you son right. of a bitch. Right. <laughs> I, hate, I hate your guts. That is exactly, you can forget about all of Mike's act, but every comic comes out at the end to watch that closing bit. And it's a long bit. It's about maybe uh, 15 minutes or so. I think I think it's six and a half minutes or so. Yeah. Well, I I learned early on doing comedy is like it doesn't matter what you do until the last five minutes. You know, if you can kill the last five minutes and you have something you know is going to kill, that's what they're going to remember for. It's like it's like music. If you can play that big song at the end, like, ah, that was a great that was a great concert. You play that I, big song at the end. I used to do an intro that I would say. Uh, uh, I asked three questions before the show starts and I'd be like, you know, first question, you guys ready to have a good time? And of course they get the cheap pop and they say yes. And then 
I go, second question, are you guys drinking? And of course, they're all popping. And then the third question is, do you ever think you'd see Chaz Bono doing comedy in? <laughs> and, then I, and I put the city in. And, you know, no one ever says to me, you know, that joke that you wrote about, you know, this was just amazing. I can't even tell you how many times I've been stopped at like a rest area on the Garden State Parkway <laughs> and here, hey, Chaz. And I'm like, oh, it was to the point where I stopped doing it because it was just getting really, really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. signal man yeah what do you guys listen to like what like now nowadays and you're driving we, we all drive to gigs what's your go-to listening to like who what bands are you still into well i'm still listening to old stuff man I, I, in fact i keep going back further uh, these days i'm listening to like 1932 louis louis armstrong <laughs> a lot wow. of that duke ellington and that, that shit you know and i i have a huge uh, 45 collection you know like two bedrooms full so i and and one of the things i collected i a guilty pleasure i collect cover records 50s cover records the worse they are the more i like them. <laughs> you know? what's the worst one? Oh, steve lawrence doing speedo <laughs> is a great bad record or alan dale who was a a mafia uh, uh owned Italian singer from New Jersey, Alan Dale doing The Girl Can't Help It. Dude. It's so bad, it's, it's wonderful, you know. <laughs> On the other side, what's the best covers you've heard? Oh, the ones I like best are the ones where they don't try to sound like the original. Yep. There's a version of Teresa Brewer doing an obscure song by Winoni Harris called, um, oh, uh, 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 not Bloodshot Eyes, what the hell's the name of it? Uh, Oh God, no! Never mind. Old, old man moment there. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of cover songs too, and I have to agree. When when you hear, uh, you know, even if it's like a a '50s or '60s song, and all they really do is just put the distortion pedal on, and <laughs> it's like it, uh, you know, liven it up a little bit. I love when you know it's you know it's the song that you're expecting, and then when you put it on, it completely blows you away because how they're rewriting that song and doing it in their own way. To me, yeah. that's, I mean, I don't want to hear a cover that's like, it's just them, a different person singing it. That's just not what I want to hear. I want to hear their take on the song, the way they would change it if they had written it. You should hear some of the rotten covers of At This Moment. <laughs> oh, really? Are so vomitous. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you who did a nice version, uh, Rita Coolidge because what, what most of them try to do with it, because it's an emotional song, they get old, you know, melodramatic with, oh, if I could just fucking hold you again. You know, you, you get that, and, and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you, let, you let the song do the work for you. You, you know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Just, just, just sing it conversationally. I mean, I'm not going to name any of these rotten ones, but uh, some of them are, Pretty god awful, you know. <laughs> Do you ever go down the wormhole like you get a song like uh I love the song You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, Dusty Springfield. Oh I yeah. Just, I then just start going down the wormhole and finding artists who cover that song. Some great like Tom Jones and some bad, like you know, some obscure guy. You guys ever do that? And what songs do you have you done that to recently? Well, I'll say one thing real quick, Jeff. You never have to worry about me ever saying that I love you. 
<laughs> I, uh, I did that not too long ago. Wait, in translation, in Sean Morton language, that means he loves me a lot. I, oh, I do. That's, a, that's dysfunctional. Uh, <laughs> I guess you've never watched this show then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one I did recently was Hallelujah. Because there's a oh, great one. Yeah, yeah, that's a boy, Jeff Buckley. Yeah, and there's a, yeah, there's a few interesting covers. Yeah. Even Bon Jovi did it. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. yeah. Bon Jovi's cover of that is mind blowing. Yeah. Because you'd never expect it. Because he, he right. never admitted to being the greatest singer in the entire world. Right. You know, he was just a pretty boy. But that version blew me away when I heard it. Mm -hmm. There really were some good. guys who were on like the international version of The Voice or some show like that. And there were these three like, like ultra European guys who sang a version of Hallelujah. And it's just unbelievable. They all had different range and different type of voices. But when it came together, they all took a verse and it sounded amazing. I don't know mm -hmm. if anyone ever saw that one, Mike. I have not, I'll check I'll that. look it up, I'll send it to you. Yeah. I'll you. tell you who did a nice version of At This Moment, believe it or not, Jimmy Fallon. Hmm. Really? Yeah. He, I mean, he, he really nailed it, you know. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, he, he definitely was a comedian who uh, always wanted to be a musician. Yeah. Without yeah. a doubt. You got that great band on that show. You know? And that's that, connection, that's that connection, too, with, with music and comedy. I always feel that comics want to be musicians. Musicians always want to be funny at the same time. It's a very weird chemistry between the two different uh, forms of art. Yeah. People, yeah musicians get all the girls, that's why. <laughs> people often want to do uh you know something else i i don't want to act i want to direct you know that kind of thing now bill you you've done quite a bit of acting huh weren't you a regular on, on uh that uh what was that show 90210 yeah yeah i had a recurring role on that and um wise guy i was a wise guy yeah i got killed in that and uh my sister my sister who was a uh, drank a bit my late sister she calls up the next morning. Oh, you're alive! It's a, <laughs> it's, a it's television. You know, what I mean. And uh, yeah, and then it was. I was in a movie called Blind Date with Bruce Willis and Kim Basinger. And uh, I guess the best known one is this cult movie called Buckaroo Banzai. And uh, it it came out. Listen to the cast: Peter Weller, Ellen Barkin, Jeff Goldblum, John Lithgow. I mean, all these great actors before they made it. I mean, everybody in that movie went on to be somebody. And, uh, and, and it became, it, it, it flopped in the theaters. And then a year later, when they put it out on video, um, it became number one on the video charts. You know, I, I always felt it was because people could stop it and go back because they made them edit the movie to make it about a half hour shorter so there was no room between the jokes and so people needed some breathing room you know to get the the, 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 the quirky little things that were in there the little jokes and so they could do that with the on video they could go what did he say oh mm -hmm. ha, 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 you know and uh so i mean people to this day uh still you know, shout my lines back at me on that one. <laughs> That's great. Billy, did you, is that you doing the theme song for King of Queens? Yeah, buddy. That's the gift that keeps on giving. That lasted nine years. Went in there. It's still, two, it's two still going in, in uh, syndication, right? Oh, as my residual checks uh, tell me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was on nine years. 
and as we speak, it's playing somewhere. Mm -hmm. It was just one of those lucky gigs, man, that came along. When you write the theme song to a TV show, can I didn't you write that. You didn't write. You just you just sung on it. I just sang it. Yeah, a friend of mine had just taken over as a head of music at uh, whatever it was, 20th Century Fox. And he said, we got this new show coming out. He said, it's like the Honeymooners, you know, fat guy with the hot wife, you know. And uh, he said, let me play you the song. He said, what do you think? I said, well, I don't know. It sounds like Paul Simon's idea of a country song. You know? <laughs> Pretty lame. He said, I said, he said, yeah, I feel the same way. He said, you think you can do anything with it? I said, well, it, it needs to be dumber, you know. Uh, he said, you think you could do I said, I do dumb better than anybody. You know? <laughs> so, so we went in there. I got my band and we, you know, we knocked it up. We simplified the chords and just, just did it 32 seconds of uh, stupidity. And, uh, and it, it, we did two takes and that was it, man. The thing keeps running and running and running. You know, what happened was when the show was hot, it was a big hit in Germany and Aust Austria. So I start getting emails from Germany and Austria. When you're coming out with King of Queens theme as a single, you'd be bigger than Hasselhoff over here. You know? Well, there it's called Kaiser of Queens. But yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's the smart comic on this show, Billy, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> Got that rib shot. <laughs> but, uh, but you see, I like that theme song because it, it kind of harkens back to the old days where like the Gilligan's Island and the, and the Brady Bunch, where it describes what you're going to see. You right. Know, it's, oh, right. It's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a guy in a truck going to go home and bang his wife. So, okay. Yeah, that's okay. it. Man. Yeah. And it was, it was really just the, the honeymooners sideways. Sure. You know, Any, other drove a Any other TV shows, theme songs, movies, anything that you're doing music for? These days? Yeah. No, I ain't doing shit. I, I got a <laughs> I got a um I got a couple of books out. I got a, a memoir called Harlem to Hollywood. And uh and uh, so that's that's nice. And then I, I was asked to write a, a history of specialty records, which was a record company that had Little Richard and Sam Cooke and Lloyd Price and people like that. And uh so I've been doing that and then I got a novel that we're trying to peddle. Uh, so that, that that's going on, and I got a record out, an album out uh, called Timeless, and uh, you know, so we're trying to just keep keep alive, man. That's you know? Timeless, original music or covers? It's all songs that I had written some years before, including that one "Don't Look Back," which I had never recorded myself, and uh, I just got the best musicians in LA to come and do me a favor and make this little record for me, and. Uh, we're actually getting some airplay here and there. And, uh, you know, I had to put it out myself on CD Baby and all that crap. You know? Hey, did you but like the Beach Boys? You know, in the day, living in New York, I didn't care for them that much. You know, I was more of Dion and the Belmonts kind of guy. But uh, as I grew older, I learned to appreciate uh, the brilliant songwriting of Brian Wilson. I mean, God Only Knows and uh, some of the, I mean, wonderful songs. but. It, as a young fellow, I, I, I wasn't really into them, but I, now I am. This goes to everybody, Mike, Billy, Sean. If you guys could be part of any band, you know, that's not your own, what band would you want to be part of? Let them go first. I got to think. Sean, do you want to go? Or, uh, uh, I, 
I don't want to be in this. I mean, I'm, I sang, so I would I would never want to take away a lead singer role, but I can I can play a really shitty guitar on top of all of it. So it's dog eat dog, Sean. Come on. I would probably be. Uh, I'd probably play rhythm guitar for Guns and Roses. That would be like your go-to pick. Like you could, like if you could had like a genie gonna grant you a wish to take Sean, we're gonna put you in any band, you know, and you're gonna live the life for two years. Guns yeah. and Roses. Go-to. Rhythm guitar for Guns N' Roses. I can <laughs> sing a little backup for Axel. I can look over and be a little fangirl watching Slash play the guitar. I'd be totally fine with that. And after two years, you'd be dead. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, two yeah. years. I'd be, if I went on tour on Tuesday, I'd be done by Sunday. Are you kidding me? <laughs> How about you, Mike? Well, I mean, my favorite band, I would have to say, uh, it would you know, I would, the Beatles. I think. Uh, and you know, speaking of the Beatles, is it today McCartney's birthday? It is. Paul's yes, it is. Seventy-eight. And uh, yeah, and I, because I, I think they encompassed, you know, both live, you know, if, you, if you're playing with them live in 1964, it, that must have been an amazing thing to have people, you know, a, a stadium just go crazy like that. And then later on, where you're in that, you know, in Abbey Road Studios, and you're just watching, and if I was in the band, uh, uh, creating these amazing pieces, I think that would be it. You got the, the Sergeant Pepper look going on now, so you're. Uh, I do. I'm I'm Ensign Pepper. So I'm working my way up. <laughs> I'm Kaiser Pepper. See, a callback. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. What'd you ask? Say, all right, now Billy's on oh, the spot. Okay. Billy's on the spot. Having having been on the road, I wouldn't want to go on the road with anybody. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but I'd I'd like to be in Count Basie's band. That would be really hip, man. You know, playing all those great charts and playing the Savoy Ballroom, man, in Harlem in 1942. You know, man, that that would be just the greatest to me. Did you ever meet a, uh, uh, an artist that you really admired that were a total dick after you met them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I played with, you know, I played with all my, most of my heroes uh, in the early days. You know, and in the early 70s, there was an oldies revival in New York. So we played a... a we did 13 shows uh, at the um, Academy of Music, backing up all of all the greats, you know. Uh, uh, Chuck Berry was a dick. Uh, <laughs> he he was it was more he was more nuts, you know, than anything else. I played with him when he was a $1,300 a night act in 1964. I played with him when he was a, 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 a I'd say a fifty thousand dollar night act in the 70s and then i played with him at uh at caesar's palace when he was doing like seventy five thousand dollars a night i opened for him then not not played for him but he he liked me uh and and he he was he was the weirdest guy you know he 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 would he would book his gigs on, on the contract it was for scale union scale like 295 dollars right but he's getting all this money in cash right. and he wouldn't go on until he was paid in cash. So he's wearing these pants and you could see this big roll of money in his pocket <laughs> and he wouldn't go on. He wouldn't rehearse. He wouldn't tell you what song was next. He wouldn't tell you what key it was in. He expected you to know. And he never, he never stumped me, not once. And finally we did this, we did three days with him one time at some outdoor festival. And finally, on the third, on the second day, he turns around. He says, as if to say, "Okay, asshole, I, I, I couldn't get you." <laughs> From then on, he was okay. 
but he was a sick dude, man. I mean, one time we were, I, I was playing guitar for the Shirelles in the early 70s. And we're playing, I don't know, Erie, Pennsylvania, some big venue. And me and Bo Diddley and Gary U.S. Bonds were walking down the hall past these dressing rooms. And we walked by Chuck's and his door is open. He says, hey, fellas, he says, he says come in, and, which was totally unlike him. He didn't really, he was a loner. Mm -hmm. So we go in there and he says, he says, I want to show you something. Look what I got. And it was the first, one of the first video tape machines. I said, oh, wow, what's that? He said, well, it's video, man. It's the coming thing. It's going to be big. I said, wow, it's cool. He said, you want to see something? So he sticks a tape in. And it's him doing some girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, TMI, Chuck, you know. <laughs> Great. It's like, you know, who wants this? And, we're, and, and, and Bo and Gary and I are all looking at each other. How, how can we get out of here, you know? That's how, that's how nuts he was, you know? Well, you'd think, you'd think Chuck Berry would invite you in off your Coke, at least. No, here, <laughs> here, just look at my dick on video. That's great. Yeah, great, Chuck. You know, thanks. How Another time I played with him at the, um, what was that theater up on Broadway? Um, well, it was one of the first HBO uh, shows. And it was an oldie show. It was we, we were hired to play for him and Little Anthony and the Imperials. So we rehearsed Little Anthony and the Imperials. And, and I see in the back of the theater, I could see Chuck uh, Silhouette. And I said to the, the stage manager, I said, uh, Ray, I said, doesn't Chuck want to come up and rehearse? I said, this is television after all. It's not just some show that he can walk through his hits, you know. I said, well, shh, be cool. I said, what? He said, Chuck just wrote five songs on the plane here. He wants to do them. <laughs> I said, schmuck. I said, didn't you put in the contract? You got to do, you know, Johnny Be Good and this one and the hits. He said, yeah, of course. But what do you tell Chuck Berry? You know, he, he, he walked, he went home. He didn't do the show because he wouldn't let it. He walked out on a $10,000 to do three songs. Wow. And, and I, for years, I couldn't figure out why he would do that, except he's nuts. And, and then I finally figured it out. He's so paranoid that he, he thought that once they had him on tape, that they could use it forever and not pay him again. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's how his mind worked. You know, he was very uh, money conscious. Yeah, well, he got screwed over so badly early on, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and yes and no. I mean, he screwed himself. You know what I mean? He, he, he thought he was so slick that he'd do things that ended up screwing himself. This, uh, so the last time we worked with him was that, that gig at Caesars Palace. It was like 1987, New Year's Eve. So we got at the, we, we arrived at the airport and I see him coming up the escalator and he's wearing some, you know, cheap 1972 polyester shirt and these crummy double knit yellow bell bottom pants from the seventies. And so I said, I'm going to goof on him. You know, and I said, Chuck, dude, where, where'd you get the vines, man? And he gets all excited. He says, man, baby, I, I got him at the Goodwill, man. I paid $6 for this shirt, man. I paid, the guy's a multimillionaire. You know, he could buy the right. hotel, right? I said, oh, Chuck, man, that's really a cool outfit, man. And, you know, and he's, and he's really proud of himself that, he, that he, he, he's the kind of guy that would sleep in his Cadillac rather than book a hotel room, you know, when he could buy the hotel. I mean, it was, it was out there, man. You know, a lot of these guys are. Sometimes I think that to be 
on that level of Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, you got to be whacked. You know, mm-hmm. the only sane one I think was 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 Fats Domino. You know, he was he was a pretty sane guy. My mom was always a huge Jerry Lee Lewis fan, and which made me a big Jerry Lee Lewis fan. Oh, and then great. I guess yeah. it was about uh, I don't know, maybe thirteen years ago. Uh, he was playing in New York City. I think it was a town hall in New York City. Yeah. So we, I said, you know what? It was a Mother's Day gift. One of those gifts. I bought tickets. And he went out. And at about 30 minutes, he goes, I'm going to play you a new song. And he played it. And he got a, a, a slight round of applause. And he goes, you know what? You don't like my new shit. You ain't getting my old shit. And he slammed <laughs> the piano down and walked off the stage. So I paid like, I think it was close to $100 a ticket for that show. And he, got, he played about 33 minutes and stormed off the stage. And people thought it was like an act. And then yeah. the lights came on. Everybody was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like we all, I mean, this was a, it was a big ticket at the time. Sure, of course. But you got a great story out of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I got a great story. I got a minute and a half story on my podcast that I, I dropped $300 on. I'll tell you what, I'll take the $300. It's, no, that was worth it. It was worth the price. But that was annoying because like, I, I loved him growing up. I mean, I, I watched that movie of his probably a hundred times. Great Balls of Fire. Yeah, you know, I've watched it a hundred times. I loved it, and then just to see him, and he was one. That was like one of the two most disappointing concerts I ever went to in my entire life. What was the other one? Bob Dylan. You're not a big Dylan fan, are you? I, I appreciate what he's done for American culture and everything, but when I tell you that it was on a July Fourth, it was at an outdoor amphitheater called Tanglewood up in the Berkshires. I know it, and I'm saying within 20 minutes, people are starting to stand up and pack their chairs up. And within 45 minutes, half the place is gone. Wow. He, he was just, I don't know, maybe it was just an off night. Maybe Dylan didn't sound too Dylan-y that day, but uh, he walked half the crowd. It was just a very strange experience. Wow. Let's go back I, to your real question. Mike. How about you? Who, someone who, you know, when Sean asked, who, um, did, you know, because I you know you've worked with a ton of, you work with Gilbert, you work with Lisa Lampanelli, you wrote for Leno. Who did you ever meet that, you know, was kind of like a dick to you? Ah, let me think here. You know, it's I, none of the more well-known people have been dicks. It's usually the middle or even the lower echelon, especially in comedy, that are complete dicks, you know, that, that have, have been in it for a while and really haven't gotten success. They're and they, they think they should have success. And, uh, and if they get anything, you know, any good thing happening to them, they just abuse it. and, and it goes right to their head. So I, I yeah, I, I mean, the, the bigger, I worked for Lisa for, you know, 10 years and she was always great. She I never, never had a fight, never had a problem. And, and I've seen her have fights with a lot of people because uh, she was, a, you know, she, definitely a, a perfectionist. Um, you know, Stern was, was amazing, you know, I worked with him for a while and he was always super nice and, and, um, you know, very What's that? Fred was Fred a dick? No, Fred is great. The only the only person who who I oh, met on the Stern show. No, Bob, oh, oh, Gary's great. Gary is is really super good. Um, the only person who was a dick was uh, well, a couple. Uh, uh, Stuttering John back in the day, he was a bit of a dick. Um, uh, Ralph, when I first met him, uh, his uh, Howard's stylist, Ralph was a dick. But then then we kind of made a little amends. But he's still kind of a you know dickish. But I, I like him. Uh, and then Benji is not a dick, but he's is weird. If you follow the Stern show, 
and you, you think, well, is that an act? No, he's really like odd, but he's a nice guy. He was, he was very nice, but just, he was, he was like very Andy Kaufman-esque where you never knew if he's playing a prank on you or not, but it was like, he was doing it 24 seven. So it was, I guess it's not a prank. Interesting stuff, man. All right. Sean, anything you'd like to add here? Uh, definitely the one comic that I thought was a dick was Mike Morse when I worked with oh, him. Oh, wait. Those, no, I, you're not going to get to see my, my ending bit anymore. Uh, that's all. <laughs> I listened. You know what? The first time I ever did radio was on Miserable Men. Oh, was it? Okay, cool. Yeah, a million, million years ago with yeah. Andrew W.K., the old uh, oh, God, singer. Yeah, Great yeah. dude. Um, I don't know. I just want to give a, a shout out to my buddy Mike Massiello for hooking us up with uh, Billy Vera today. He's a, a friend of ours. He's a fan of ours. He's always on the lookout to try and help us. So I want to give him a shout out. And uh, I, I really, uh, I love this interview. And I have to tell you, I think it's maybe my favorite episode so far. This is great. Cool. Really was. So thank you, guys. Thank you guys both. Thank you. You know, I'll talk about Jerry Lee Lewis. I, I got to sing with him on a record one time. Wow. Uh, I was in Memphis uh, recording with Steve Cropper and Steve was doing a, a Jerry Lee Lewis album and Jerry Lee had on the piano he had a quart of bourbon or something and the more he drank the faster he played <laughs> and, uh, and, and so on this one song called the title of the song was Jack Daniels old number seven <laughs> and so I sang harmony with him and he, he when, I, when he introduced me to him he shook my hand and he's squeezing it really hard you know I and he's looking at me in the eye, and I'm figuring, what's now? What's this? What's his? What's his thing, man? What's he trying to do? Is he trying to test me or something? So I just, you know, I just shook the hand and held it, and then, and that was it, you know. But I'll tell you another story about him with Chuck Berry. Now, I was not there, but my dear friend Paul Gayton, a great R&B uh, musician from New Orleans, his job was to follow Chuck or Bo Diddley around for chess records for whom they both recorded. And if bail them out of trouble whenever they got in trouble. So in this particular show, they were alternating uh, who would be the closing act. Would it be Chuck one night, would it be Jerry Lee the other night? Because they were both headliners. And, and they, each one would get pissed when the other guy was the closing act, you know, ego, ego, ego. So this particular night, Chuck was the closing act, and Jerry Lee was furious. So he says, "I, I, I said, uh, he says, I got to do something. I got to do something." So he he pours a lighter fluid all over the piano, mm -hmm. and he lights it, and the piano's on fire, and of course the audience goes nuts, and it's great. And then he comes off stage, and uh, and and he and Chuck's standing in the wings, and Jerry Lee says, "Okay, follow that shit." Mm -hmm. Word. One of the famous scenes in the movie. Well, it was true. My friend Paul yeah. came there, and and uh, and Chuck pulls out a knife, you know, and Jerry Lee pulls out a pistol, and they, of course, they separated them, and that was it. Yeah, I forgot that, but that was in the movie. Yeah, that's yeah. a great story. Wow. And <laughs> I, I met Dylan one time. I do. I was doing a lot of reissue work, you know, putting out old. R&B records and old rock and roll records for different record labels, compiling CDs and all that stuff, writing the notes and everything. So uh, I had done two for this artist named Percy Mayfield. Percy was the greatest songwriter of the blues. He wrote uh, Hit the Road Jack and Please Send Me Someone to Love, a lot of great songs. 
So I'm, I'm, at that time, my manager was this guy named Sandy Gowan, who had a lot of big acts. He had Dolly and Neil Diamond, Patti LaBelle, a lot of big people. And every year he would do a Christmas party. So I'd go there and I don't do very well at parties because I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not the guy that said, hi, I'm Billy. You know, I, I just wait for somebody to talk to me because I'm shy like that. So anyway, I'm, I'm sitting there drinking a Pepsi and this woman that I kind of knew comes over to me. She says, oh, Bob would uh, like a word with you. And I looked over her shoulder, it was Bob Dylan, who I had never met. And so she introduced us and he says, man, I love that so those records you did with Percy Mayfield. You know, and uh, I said, wow, you know Percy Mayfield? He said, yeah. He said, he said, you're right when you called him the poet of the blues. And so for the next two and a half hours, we're talking about Percy Mayfield. Meanwhile, all these A-list assholes are coming up. You know, here's Madonna, here's Ryan and Farah, and, uh, you know, this one and that one, and to kiss the ring. And he's blowing them off, I mean, rudely. He don't want to talk to Madonna. You know, he, he wants to talk about Percy Mayfield. And then finally, after literally two and a half hours, he just stands up, he says, man, starting to fade, got to split. And he goes home. That was it. That's yeah. my, my big Bob Dylan moment, you know? That's awesome. Really cool. What do we got coming up, fellas? I mean, things are starting to open up a little bit in the world. We got any projects coming up? Anything going on? Just trying to plug the record, plug the books. Okay. That, that's it. How can people get the book? Amazon. Amazon. It's called Harlem to Hollywood. And then there's also a documentary that these guys did about me uh, called Harlem to Hollywood. Uh, the title comes from, I, I got my start playing at the Apollo Theater in the late 60s, and uh, and I moved to Hollywood. And we got some cool people in the movie, uh, Dolly Parton's in there, Dionne Warwick, Joey D, uh, you know, Richard Roundtree, my homeboy from Westchester, and Benny Ghost, a lot of cool people. And we got footage of me and Judy Clay on stage at the Apollo in 1968. So that's that's worth seeing, and uh, if you're a real collector of rock and roll, the, the specialty story is very good too. It's called "Rip It Up," the specialty record story, and the album "Timeless." So we got "Timeless," Harlem to Hollywood. People are gonna check that out, Mike. I got my eye on some hand sanitizer. I'm hoping to get. Uh, you got that going goal. for you. Kind of a goal. Yeah, just you know, keeping on until the things open up. Writing a lot of comedy, doing a lot of art all kinds of good stuff you know until things get back to normal yeah it'll be it'll be sooner than we think i doubt it <laughs> <We're just> optimistic buddy <laughs> all right man sean you're right this was a great loved great, it i loved it it went the time went by so quick all you right know, i got that same mic that you're on my uh i do a lot of voiceovers mm -hmm. and uh my main client is, I don't know if they have them back in Jersey, uh, AM, PM uh, convenience stores and the Arco stations. And, uh, and I've been doing it for 20 years for the same people. And since I can't go in and do my commercials anymore, they sent me that mic. That, oh, nice. That, that yeah, it's, it's a wonder. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Very Sounds cool. Good. Well, so guys, Jeffrey, thank you. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being uh, What's that? I just wanted to tell Jeff, next time you see me, I'm going to have a mohawk and an eye patch. So There you go. Oh. You'll fit perfectly in Williamsburg. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, thank you both for having me. Oh, it was, a, it, was, it was an honor and a pleasure. And I can't wait to hear the closing bit sometime in 2021 when we're back on the road again. <laughs> right. Well, guys, thank you so much. Uh, check out Who's Your Band on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, all that shit. Give us a great review. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Subscribe to the page. And uh, thank you all for coming on the show. Well, great fun, man. Thanks, everybody. You well. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.